The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 7:25 through chapter 8, verse 32. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and in your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They should be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses in the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so and stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you would not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also in the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, 
I'm going out from you. And I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as, as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we are going to spend a significant amount of our time studying the chemistry of our heart or the chemistry of the heart. We're going to do that first because it has clearly been, if you've been with us now for the last couple months, it's clearly a dominant theme in the book of Exodus. Uh, They keep talking about Pharaoh's heart over and over and over chapter after chapter. And for all of us who, you know, had to take chemistry in high school or college and wondered if we'll ever use it again. Well, today's the day. In fact, understanding the chemistry of the heart is one of the most important lessons you can ever learn. In fact, once you understand this, you're going to see how your heart's chemistry determines, listen, the direction of your life and the destiny of your life. So which, which way you're headed and where you're going to end up or, you know, which way you're headed and what you're, what kind of person you're going to be when you get there. But before we get into the chemistry of the heart, let me first help us understand what the Bible means by heart. Now you may be saying, I know what the heart is. The heart is clearly feelings and emotions Right? Your, your heart does the loving and your head does the thinking and, and choosing. But honestly, that's a strictly modern way of understanding the heart, heavily influenced by Hallmark. It is not a biblical understanding of the heart. In short, the Bible teaches, listen, that the heart is the controlling center of the human person. Okay, The heart is the controlling center of of the human person. The heart actually includes the mind, your will, what your chooser and your emotions. So there is no real separation. Biblically speaking, even though we talk about it sometimes between head and heart, when the Bible speaks of heart, oftentimes, I mean, it's the whole controlling center of your being. Okay. The heart is the place where you decide what you will worship. What does that mean? The heart is where you decide what's most exciting to you. What most captures your imagination, what you most love, what you find beautiful and attractive. This all takes place in the heart. Sometimes Absent from the mind. We don't cognitively think I'm going to be really attracted by this thing. We just are attracted by this thing. Kind of like a food. We eat it. We just like it or we don't like it. We don't, we didn't think about I'm going to like this or I'm going to hate it necessarily. So in the heart is where we really choose what we love, what we worship. So the Bible says things like this in Proverbs 4.23, very common verse. Keep your heart with all vigilance, vigilance discipline, passion, protect your heart. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. From your heart 
flow, some, some verses say the issues of life. Your life flows from your heart. Think of your heart as the headwaters of a great river. If it's coming downstream, it's downstream because it was first in the heart, right? And if that means if you're worshiping something other than God, if something other than God is the most important thing in your heart, then the rest of your life is going to go, is going to flow in that direction towards the worship of something else. Have you ever noticed that when your heart's imagination gets caught up in something, it also tends to change the shape of your life, right? Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but, you know, people's clothing has significantly changed in the past few months around the Quad Cities. There's a whole lot more bright blue and red and white being worn, not just America, okay? I'm talking cubbies, right? Why? Right? Look at there. There we go. We got Sandberg in the house today, right? Why? Why is that? Why is that? Our hearts imagine, this is why. For a hundred years, right? Right. We've been in slavery for a hundred. No. Cubs, right? They're not, they have not been very good. They are very good. We're, we like them now. We're into baseball again, right? We're a winning team again. Our hearts get, get captured by them. So well, guess what gets captured? Your schedule gets captured. You're actually watching these, you know, six-hour games now, right? Your, your pocketbook gets captured. You're buying jerseys. You're buying hats. You're, gonna, you're wanting to see if you can make it to the World Series. Our heart, our life takes the shape of what's in our heart, okay? You see this. For a person who, you know, maybe they, you really see this for a person who, who gets a Harley Davidson. Okay, one time I was given a Harley Davidson. Okay, someone gave me a Harley, now my wife took it away, but <laughs> I was given a Harley Davidson. All right, that, that's just, we can talk about that later. It's just, I'm a little bitter still. Uh, I was given a Harley Davidson and I didn't realize that just having a Harley Davidson, how it was going to change my life. Soon as I got on that thing and I started riding it, all of a sudden, these big burly men who would never give me the time of day started waving at me. I'm like, I'm with that guy. You know, like all of a sudden I'm in this new community. All of a sudden I'm wanting to what? I need a coat. I need some pants. I need, I need some things that like, I want to put some new things on my Harley. I'm going to put a sticker on my window. The flow of my life has changed because my heart was kind of captured by something new. Now, we could put this a million different things in there. The, the principle is the same. What captures your heart kind of determines the direction and then the destination of your life. And Jesus actually agrees here with Solomon when he says in Matthew 15, 19 to a group of religious people. And I hear this. This is kind of a different little twist on it. Jesus says these people who had been following the rules, but they were doing it out of wrong motives. Their motives were set on their own pride, their own gain. They wanted to look good in the eyes of other people. Jesus says this, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Wait, wait, no, no, no. Thoughts come out of your mind, Jesus. He didn't take psychology, right? No, Jesus says, no, out of the heart flow your evil thoughts. Murder. Murder flows out of your heart. Adultery, sexual morality, theft, stealing comes out of your heart. False witness, lying, slander. 
And he says, these are what defile a person. It's not necessarily the outward things that you see. It's what's in your heart. That's the, that's the headwaters of your heart, right? Everything else is going to flow out of that. Jesus is saying, it's not just about your behavior. You can be doing the right things for the wrong reasons with the wrong heart. But always when you see wrong behavior, it's because it's actually coming from something that's a heart whose chemistry is off. Luke 6.45, Jesus says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus says, what comes out of your mouth shows can oftentimes reveal the current state of your heart. Jesus here gives us two states of the heart. He says one is good and one is evil. And what we're going to see today is everyone's heart is kind of somewhere on this spectrum. And I want you to see this isn't black and white. It's a spectrum. It's a gradient. There's there's black and white, but then it's gradient in the middle. And so we're on this kind of spectrum between two states or what the Bible calls a soft heart or a heart of flesh or an evil or a good heart, like Jesus said, or a hard heart, a heart of stone, a heart of evil, like Jesus said. And this is where kind of chemistry comes in. The three states, you, 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 don't tune me out right now. We, as soon as I say chemistry, it's like, but please don't. Let me just give you this. The three states or phases of matter, right? We know this, they're gas, liquid, and solid. And a phase transition happens when matter in one phase changes to another phase due, due to a change in either temperature or pressure. So we get this, right? You put butter in a pan, you turn the heat on, it liquefies, right? It becomes liquid. You have ice, right? And you add heat to it, it becomes water. It changes states. That's a phase transition, all right? It changes states. And I want us to think of our heart like this. Okay, the Bible actually does. The Bible says that our heart is like wax. It's the language David uses in Psalm 22. Now think about this. At room temperature or at cold temperature, a wa- wax is a solid. It's in a solid, hard state of being. But when a flame touches that wax, it changes to a liquid. Chemistry calls that a phase transition. A solid changes its chemistry to a liquid. Now, this is the same way the Bible speaks of our hearts. Our hearts are born in a state of hardness. They're like stone. They're the wax in a solid state. But when God comes near to us as a consuming fire that we've already seen him in Exodus to be, our hearts become soft. They melt like wax. But then here's my, here's what you think about. So the wax gets near to the fire and it becomes liquid. But what happens to that wax when it pulls away from the flame? It becomes hard again, returns to a solid. And the same is true of our hearts. See, In some ways, this is one of the most important lessons you can learn about your own heart and your own 
relationship with God. Do you know, can you say right now, do you know the current chemistry of your own heart? What state is it in right now? Well, today I pray that we're going to learn how to diagnose that state and then change it if we need to. We're, going to, we're looking at chapter 8 here and we're seeing uh, that Pharaoh's heart is hard. God has already told us that several times. But what does a hard heart look like? What is a hard, how can you diagnose a hard heart? How does it show itself in real situations? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's start with verse 1. Then the Lord said, actually, I'm going to start in 25. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So God had given a week break from his last judgment that he brought on the Egyptians and Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Again, God is not changing his mind. He wants his people delivered so they can stop worshiping Pharaoh and start worshiping him. But if you refuse to let them go, Behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Now, first thing we should probably ask yourself there is why frogs? Well, interestingly enough, and we spend a lot of time talking about this, all of these idols or all of these um, plagues that God's sending against Pharaoh are actually in response to the false gods of Egypt. And the frog god of Egypt was called Heket. And it was a goddess who was pictured with the head of a frog, sometimes even the body of a frog, and was worshipped by the Egyptians. And now, interestingly enough, most gods are formed around something that the people really feared. Something they were really afraid would happen. And Heket was a god that promised, uh, one, one of the things that was that she controlled and she would assist women in childbirth. And think about all of the dangers that go into childbirth, even in modern, even in today's day and age, right? The, the losses that, that, that take place in childbirth can just, I mean, they can bring a lot of fear to our hearts. They, you know, whether it's miscarriage or anything else, they can bring a lot of fear to our heart. And what happens when we get fearful, we want to cling to something, right? We want to find something that can help us in our fear. And the Egyptians, they clung to Heket, this false God. They worship this false God to give them good omens in childbirth. And so God here is attacking their idolatry. He's going after this false omen that they're using to kind of get the favor of the gods. And he's going to war with it this morning. So I'm going to say this. The first thing we need to know about having a hard heart or getting a hard heart or Diagnosing a hard heart is it always begins with worshiping an idol. It always begins with worshiping an idol. It's so interesting to me that Pharaoh's hard heart, we're going to see it's really hard, but it's, it happens because he worships an idol. Now listen, this is what the Bible says. And it's just fascinating to me. We read it in our profession of faith this morning. The Bible says those who worship false gods, those who worship idols. Now, let me just say this. What is an idol? Anything other than God that we worship as God. That's an idol. Money, success, power, sex, relationships, 
comfort, anything that gets in the top place of our heart becomes an idol. But listen to this. This is what God says about it. Those who worship them become like them. Those who worship them become like them. Think about these little idols of stone. Those who worship them become like them. Hard. Cold. Lifeless. This is the first step of your heart returning to a hardened state or staying in a hardened state is worshiping something other than God at the chief spot of your heart. You become like them. Cold, hard, distant. You become what you worship. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, The Nile shall swarm with frogs and shall come up into your house and into your bedroom. And interesting enough, the Egyptians, because they worship these frogs, they couldn't kill them. Killing a frog was illegal. It was off limits. It was abomination, right? You, you couldn't do it. And so God, I love it. So God's like, they can't kill, they can't kill frogs. You like, oh, you like the frog, God? Let, I'll give you some frogs. Here you go. And their houses begin to swarm with them. Look, uh, the Nile shall swarm with frogs and shall come up into your house. And they're, they're, this is disgusting, right? Into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed. Oh, and into the houses of your servants and your people. And I love, this one is like just, God is just like, it's got like a sense of humor. And into your ovens. You're not supposed to kill frogs and they go into the ovens. This is funny. And kneading bowls. Like this is disgusting. The frogs shall come up on you and your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron did. He stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt. And the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Look at this though. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So we saw last week, this is more than just worshiping dead things or worshiping fake things or worshiping creating things. There's actually a demonic side to it. And these are actually the false gods of Egypt. And they're actually are inspired by demonic worship. And these magicians here perform their own magic trick. And they, but what do they do? This is so fascinating to me. What do they do? Moses and Aaron spread out frogs. We have a frog problem. Call the magicians. What do the magicians do? They make it worse. We can do that too. I don't care if you can do that. I want rid of the frogs. But again, false idols. What does the enemy come to do? Steal, kill, and destroy. He makes things worse. He doesn't have the power to redeem. He doesn't have the power to help. He doesn't have the, he doesn't have the ability to, to remove the yoke of God's judgment upon them. All, all they can do is make it worse. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And look, and I'll let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. He, he makes a promise there. He's tired of the frogs, so he makes a promise. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs could be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. All right, now look at this. This is, 
I'm geeked out about this. I'm going to say fascinating again, because it is to me. It's very fascinating. Moses says, or Pharaoh says, go pray to God. I'll let the people go. I'm making a rash promise here. He's basically lying. I'll let the people go. And he just wants rid of the frogs. I'll let the people go. Go ahead and, and go do that. And then Moses says, all right, I'm going to go to God. I'll pray to him. He'll remove the frogs. When do, when do you want me to do that? When do you want me to do that? And this is what Pharaoh says. Verse 10. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. Tom, tomorrow. Come to think of it, I think I'd like one more night with these frogs. Now this shows us, it's funny, but it shows us something interesting about the chemistry of the heart. When a heart is hard, repentance is always tomorrow. A hard heart always, always says, tomorrow I'll change. I'll settle down someday. Give me one more night with these frogs. Give me one more night in this relationship. Give me one more night serving this false idol. Yeah. Pharaoh's like, yeah, I'm in a bad spot. I recognize that I'm here. Pharaoh sees I'm here because of my own sin. I've been resisting the God of the universe and I've been serving my own gods and I'm here because of my own sin and my own disobedience and my own foolishness. And I even realize that God can deliver me anytime he wants to. And the only, the other things in my life have only made it worse. They've only compounded the problem, but I'd rather sit in my sin one more night. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this played out within the context of a missional community. People brought, they've been shown kind of their own rebellion, their own sin. They're in this problem because of some decisions they've made and, and people trying to apply the gospel and trying to preach the gospel to them and, and then just having this hard heart and just really this tomorrow, next week, someday. Not knowing that true repentance Listen, the only type of repentance is right now. Think about this. Pharaoh's sin will never be less powerful than in this moment. Think of it like this. Your heart is like Play-Doh that has been set left outside overnight. Repentance better happen now because in the morning it might be rock hard. Your heart is on this constant state of moving back between hardness and softness. And for and the only hope we ever have is this moment right now. Repentance is now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Now, not tomorrow, not after I've sowed my wild oats, not when I want to settle down when I'm 30 or not down the road. Now is the only time to repent. Tomorrow could be too late. Let's keep reading. Moses said, be it as you say. Okay, tomorrow. So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. 
So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs and he, as he had agreed with Pharaoh and the Lord did according to the word of Moses and the frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. And this is firsthand account. It was disgusting. It's an abomination to the, to the Egyptians. Verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord has said. So I want you to see this. Here's some steps to a hard heart. First off, it always begins with idolatry, worshiping something other than God. Secondly, the hard heart always says, I'll repent tomorrow. Third, hard hearts are always more concerned about the consequences of sin than they are about the sin itself. They're more afraid of being found out. They're more afraid of the repercussions than they are of the actual sin breaking relationship with God. It's interesting here. And this is what um, Riken, commentator uh, Philip Riken says. He says this, rather than asking God to take away his sins, Pharaoh asked God to take away the frogs. See, Pharaoh wanted relief from the punishment of sin without being willing to repent of the sin itself. And so when things get better, we go back to worshiping our idol, Right? So uh, I'm not going to, we go back to business as usual. I don't have time. I want to go into that, but I'm not going. Let's keep reading. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in, in all the land of Egypt. This is interesting here. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they couldn't. They've run out of juice, evidently. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, look here, this is the finger of God. I don't know what it was about gnats. And many commentators, they don't know if it's gnats or they don't know if it's uh, uh, fleas or lice because the, the, the word there uh, is kind of confusing of what tiny little bug it actually is, but whatever it is, it's disgusting. But something about it, the, the, the Egyptians, uh, magicians couldn't produce it. And then they diagnosed it themselves. Okay, this is a God bigger than us, a God bigger than the God that we serve. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Here we go again. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Ride up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. And as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else. If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where the Israelites are living so that no swarms of flies shall be there, and you will know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Look, 
Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. All right. Now here we go. What does a hard heart look like? What does a hard heart do? God said this, let my people go a three days journey out into the land so they can worship me how I want them to worship me. Pharaoh said, no, 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 no. He said, yes. Then he's reneged on his promise when, when, when the frogs let up and now he says, okay, go, but stay within the land, stay within Egypt, the boundaries of Egypt. So this is kind of like, um, a kind, like let's negotiate here, God. I'll let your people go, but I want them to worship you within the pantheon of all the other Egyptian gods. This is kind of a polytheistic, tolerant culture. You know, there's many roads to God. Why don't you just stay right here in Egypt and worship God? Just, you know, along with all the other gods that Egypt worships. Just worship your God like everyone else right here. Now listen, what is this? What's going on here? Here's the fourth step to a hard heart. Hard hearts are okay with God as long as he will make a deal with them. More specifically, hard hearts, it is, for hard hearts, it's always God and blank. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll serve God as long as I have financial security too. So it's God and money. Oh, I'll serve God as long as it's God and success. I want to have a successful business. And if God will somehow interrupt that, then I don't want anything to do with God. But as long as God will like help me achieve my dreams in my business, in my career, then yeah, I serve God and success or God and a perfect romantic partner. God, I love you. God, I need you. As long as you give me that woman or that man, that's going to meet my deep emotional issue or needs. Right? So it's God and a romantic partner. God, if you do it my way and give me what I want, I'll worship you too. Pharaoh says, yeah, go ahead and worship. Now you can worship, but just in the land with with all the other gods. Give me, I want you to think about this. How many of us will have this like God and Give me a good life, God. If you give me a good life, I'll worship you. Now, first off, that's entirely self-centered. It's using God to get what you really want. The good life. So, what is our heart centered on there? God or the good life? If we're using God to get the good life, and so we're saying, God, I'll worship you if you give me the good life, our heart is actually centered on the good life. We're actually worshiping our idea of the good life, and we're using God to get what we really want. Now, what's interesting here, Let's just look at Pharaoh again, see what he's doing. Verse 26, but Moses said, 
It would be not, not right for me to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, they're going to stone us. We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh says, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Look, only you must not go very far away. You must not go. Why, why is he so paranoid? Fine, you can go. Don't stay in the land. Don't go very far away. And he sounds like a very insecure lover here. Right? Where are you going? Who are you going to be with? What time? Keep your phone on. He's trying to keep. Now think about this. He's trying to keep the Israelites close. He wants to control them. He wants their worship. Now I want you to see here how, how, how the intricacies of how our heart works. Whatever is on the top spot of your heart. I'm going to call that belief A. Okay? Belief A. Everything else under that is subservient to it. Now, let me, let me show you what this is. Pharaoh believes he's a God. That's his top of his heart. Belief A, I'm God. Therefore, when God says, let my people go because I'm the Lord, Pharaoh's like, no, 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 no. I'm God. Therefore, you can't be God. And then when Pharaoh looks at his people, he sees little worshipers that worship him. And so he can't let them get very far away from him because if they leave him, then what's a God without worshipers? You see this? Now, interestingly enough, this is the way all of our human hearts work. Belief A keeps you from believing belief B. Let me show you this. We just use the good life. If I believe... If the chief belief in my life, A, is you must have a good life. If I see God as ever coming contradictory to that belief, A, I'll never accept God. I'll never let him into my life. I'll always resist him. Because what's really important to me is, A, I must have a comfortable life. I must have a good life. And then, so listen to this. So then if someone calls you into like life in a missional community or life in a fight club or life of discipleship, that's actually uncomfortable. You'll push away from it because of the top belief in your heart. Belief A. I believe God wants me to have a comfortable life. So you'll never embrace the true gospel. People do this all the time with money. I've met people that literally that say to me, the most important thing is to be good with money. And, and, and we all have funky ideas when it comes to money. Some of us just spend it because we love things. And some of us just hoard it because we just love the feeling we get when we look at the bank statement. It just tells us you're secure. Nothing can get you. You're safe. But if your top belief is God wants me to be frugal or God wants me to save money or God, you know, if that's your top belief, Anytime God comes inside of that and wants you to be generous and wants you to give it away and wants you like Jesus say, you can't serve both God and money. You will be unable to do, do belief B because you believe you hold to belief A. You, do you see that? God wants me to be very frugal. God wants me to you know, be very smart with my money. I believe that. And so every, belief B that's underneath it, I'll never give it away. I'll never be generous. I'll never give until it, it might possibly hurt. I'll never do any of those things because I hold to belief A that cancels out belief B. Now, what's interesting is we do this all the time and people have all these false beliefs about belief A. 
God has never said he's going to give us a good life in this life. Never. Those who follow Jesus, there will be many troubles. But take heart, I've overcome the world, Jesus says. Right? He never said our money was supposed to bring us comfort or security. We're supposed to give it away to prove to ourselves and prove to our world that that money is not our God. He never said that your kids can play in every sports team that they possibly can and still, you know, and, and, and you can believe that. My kids are going to be a ba- great baseball player, a great athlete, and then, all the, and then, you know, but going to church is somewhere down here. What? Belief A, what do you believe? I think many of us, when I, when I was thinking about this this week, why do I put my kids in sports? Sports build character. Sports are fun. The kids enjoy them. Um, they build discipline. There's a sense of community and camaraderie and team, team building. These are all great things. But then listen, listen. And I think that's good. But if my kids are missing church and community because of this, what does that say about the church? That means I believe that the church doesn't produce character doesn't produce discipline, doesn't produce community. I believe that the baseball team, the community on a baseball team and the commitment to a baseball team overrides the commitment to the body of Christ. Belief A overrides anything down here. I could say to him blue in the face that I love Jesus and I love the church and the body's important, but belief A, what's really on the dominant place of my heart, overrides these other things. It happens in all of our lives. And so we're going to see here in the life of Pharaoh, what does it mean to change? Like repentance is more than being aware of it. It's more than just saying you're sorry. It's more than confessing that you did something wrong and asking for forgiveness. True biblical repentance is replacing the wrong belief A with God. See, that's the sin under the sin. Whatever that wrong belief A is, I have to replace that with God. Verse 28, let's keep moving. I went too long on that. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord, your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Look at this. Plead for me. We always want to keep these idols close. And Pharaoh, man, it's so sad. A hardened heart wants their way so much that they refuse to humble themselves and plead to God themselves. Verse 29. And Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I'll plead with the Lord that the swarms of fly may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So that is what a hard heart looks like. You have those four kind of steps or stages to a hard heart. What does a soft heart look like? And this week as I was studying a soft heart, I came across uh, this these kind of four stages of a soft heart from a 17th century theologian and pastor uh, named John Owen. And John Owen had every reason to have a hard heart. Every reason. 
uh, well, I could go many of them, but here's one. He had 11 children. Oh, I'm not done. Hold on. That could have been one. Actually not. He had 11 children, 10 of whom died in infancy. And his one daughter survived to adulthood, married, and then shortly after died of consumption. So all 11 of his children died. Can you think of it as a parent? Can you think of anything more devastating, more heart hardening than something like this? And yet Owen kept a soft heart. And this is what he says. Here's some ways or signs of a soft heart. One, want, and I'm, I'm going to use his words, and then I'm going to have to reinterpret it a little bit. Want of readiness to receive divine impressions from the word of God. So he's saying a person with a soft heart has a desire to hear from God, a desire to read the word of God, a desire for God's word to get into their heart and do work. He says, when the heart is soft and tender, it is also humble and contrite and ready to tremble at the word of God. So if you have a soft heart, you desire the word of God. Two, a soft heart has a gracious sorrow for sin. He says, great sins require great sorrows. As Peter on his great sin wept bitterly, this the soul finds not in itself. This is the work of grace in the soul of man. A soft heart can weep over their sin. Not just the repercussions of their sin, not just the consequences of their sin, but the sin itself. Three, a soft heart mourns over and is affected by the sins of others. Our family, our friends, our missional community, that we are actually grieved and bothered and concerned. And we feel compassion for others enough to pray for them and to speak into their life and to walk with them through this and to call them out of it. Fourth, and finally, a soft heart wants to be made aware of the ways they've sinned against God and brought his displeasure or grieved the spirit. They welcome it. Hear that. He says, a soft heart welcomes discipline. A soft heart welcomes rebuke. A soft heart will listen to a critique. A soft heart says, if I've broken communion with God, if I've sinned against him, I want to see it. I want to be made aware of it. I want people to point it out in me. They treat hard-heartedness like cancer. If you let it go, it's going to kill you. This is what Paul says in Romans 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Listen, but because of your hard and impenitent, that means unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's saying, if you don't get the cancer out, it's going to kill you. If you don't remove the wrath of God from your life, it's going to be, you're going to be judged for it. Your sin, if left unrepentant, when you stand before the throne of God, you will be judged for your sin unless you let the surgeon cut it out. So up until 
this point here, we, we've looked at Pharaoh's hard heart, kind of looked at a soft heart. We've seen kind of the evidence of a hard heart and the evidence of a soft heart. Now we should be able to go back and ask ourselves the diagnostic question we had in the beginning. What is the current chemistry of your heart? What state is your heart in? Is it hard? Is it soft? Or is it out on that spectrum? Is it close to melting? Is it close to freezing and getting hard? Now, all of that up until this moment has been diagnostic. But how do we actually change our hearts? If we see and admit that our hearts are not in a good place and they're getting cold and they're getting hard, how do we actually change that? Well, we can get a good idea by looking at another man who had a hard heart, and his name was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Saul was very religious. He was very well educated. He was a proud man. He was very proud of all of his accomplishment and his achievement and the school that he went to and his upbringing and, and the way he lived his life. He looked down and thought, I'm so glad I'm not like those people. He was a good man on the outside. But he was also a man who thought Jesus was just a troublemaker. He was just a trouble-causing cult leader. And so Saul became one of the chief antagonists against the early church. He was literally chasing down Christians to kill them or to throw them into prison. Saul was present and he gave his approval when the first Christian martyr, Stephen, was stoned to death. Saul, in every you know, aspect of the term, was a very hard-hearted man. And even though Saul, his whole life, he kind of remained a very tough dude, he became a very tender-hearted man who passionately embraced Jesus. He planted many, many churches across the world and even wrote this right here to his church. Now listen, very hard-hearted, very hardcore dude. He wrote this to his churches. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. This is how he speaks about planting churches and being a pastor. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I've never heard a man use that analogy in my life. You know, I've never heard a pastor say it, really. How's the church going? You know, how do you feel about, you know, I kind of feel like a nursing mother. Passionately rearing and raising this church up. Now, I want you to, we can hear it, we can disconnect it from this man who was staunch and cold and religious and hard and bold and willing to kill people and willing to go grab Christians and throw them into jail and willing to say Jesus is a false God. And now all of a sudden down, his li- down the road of his life, he's tender-hearted, he's gentle, he's making the analogy of himself like a nursing mother. And then he goes on and says this, so being affectionately desirous of you, affectionately warm, he desires them, I was ready to share with you not only 
the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So the question is, what changed in Saul? Affectionately desirous, soft-hearted, tender-hearted, gentle pastor, persecutor of the church. What, what happened? Well, what happened in Saul is Saul had such a radical encounter with God that they changed his name to Paul. And there's two really simple things that brought about this change and it can bring about the same change in your own heart. One, he had a new and striking sense of his sin. When Jesus showed up to him, the resurrected Jesus, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's like, who are you, Lord? And he's like, I'm Jesus. In this moment, Saul was made aware all of his persecution, all of his striving, all of his religion, all of his moral effort was actually a sin against Jesus. It was personal. He'd been sinning against Jesus Christ. He got this new sense and awareness of his own sin, but he also, secondly, saw the glory of Jesus, saw the grandeur, the beauty of Jesus. He saw how sweet Jesus was, how forgiving and kind and gracious, and that his death on the cross was actually a deeply personal Work for him. I persecuted Jesus. And he died for me. And Saul in this moment turned from his life of sin and he embraced Jesus Christ by faith. And God fills him with the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, the words the prophet Ezekiel spoke came true in the life of Saul. And it says this, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Please hear me this morning. This is the gospel. This is what you do with the hard heart. God does not say, soften your heart by doing these certain things. He says, first and foremost, you need a new heart and only God can give you that. And so you see your sin, you see how it's hardened your own heart and you see what Jesus has done for you personally and you embrace him by faith and he takes the heart of stone out and he puts a heart of flesh in. He takes the old spirit out and he breathes the spirit anew in your heart. And if you've done that, you've already done that, I want you to see that we're on the spectrum and we kind of go back and forth, hard and soft. And religion and even church attendance, it wasn't enough to soften Saul's heart. He needed an intimate encounter with Jesus. He needed to be close to the flame. He needed the fire of God to melt his heart of stone. And the same is true for us. And so I plead to you now, what's the same? So to come to Christ the first time, what do you do? You look to Jesus if, you want, if your heart is getting cold and it's moving towards this, this, heart, this state of hardness, what do you do? You look to Jesus. Listen to this quote by John Bunyan. It might be on the slide. Do we have a slide? Yes. If you would be rid of a hard heart, the great enemy to the growth of the grace of fear, be much with Christ upon the cross in your meditations. 
For that is an excellent remedy against hardness of heart. A right sight of Him as He hanged there for your sins will dissolve your heart into tears and make it soft and tender. Make it soft and tender. I'm reminded as C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves here, that's what he says. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. Listen, if you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love it all is to be vulnerable. And so for us this morning, I'm calling us into repentance from our hard heart. I'm inviting believers and unbelievers alike, turn to Jesus, turn away from your little hobbies, turn away from your little luxuries, turn away from your idolatries and turn and embrace the one who died for your sins. And if you ask him, soften my heart, he'll do it. He'll do it. Let me pray. Father, we can't get down in our own heart. Satan tries to blind our eyes to even look at our heart. Tries to dull our affections to even be aware of what's going on in our heart. You've given us the gospel. You've given us your word. You've given us this church community. You've given us a missional community brothers and sisters in Christ to help us see our sin, help us say things like, I think your heart might be hardening. And Father, I pray that you would give us a disposition that hears that and reacts to it the same way we would if, if a doctor said to us, I think it's cancer. We wouldn't dismiss it. We would run to the doctor. We would run to Jesus and we would say, don't let it get any worse. Take out the heart of stone. Put in a heart of flesh. Do work on my heart. Soften me, Lord Jesus. Make me into the gentle lover of Paul the Apostle. Like you did in Paul, do in me. And Father, also let us remember that you died to make hard hearts soft. Jesus. And as we come this morning, I pray that our hearts would soften as your body and as your blood is placed into our hands. That you're not a hard God. You're not a taskmaster that crushes us. You are God of flesh who was broken for us. You were torn asunder for us. You were soft and were destroyed so that we can be made new again. We can be softened. I pray that you would do that work in our hearts by your spirit and also through the means of grace, the Lord's Supper this morning, the body broken for us and the blood that was shed for us.
pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.